So I was standing over there, and I'm just, a million things are going through my brain. And as this is happening, I, it, like, it dawns on me, like, I'm missing this right now. Like, I'm missing this expectancy that we're supposed to have when we are coming in to the presence of God, this expectancy that I'm going to be meeting with the living God, yet I'm getting all these distractions going on in my brain. And I, it's so easy to miss it. It's so easy to have, okay, you got to get your kids here or you got to get to church because, you know, we're not, we're probably never going to be known as the church of people who are on time no matter how many times I tell you guys, like, let's come early. We're not going to be known as that. And that's fine. Okay, whatever. So, but, but likely you're like, still, there's like a little bit of pressure to be there on time. You're like, oh my gosh, we're late. And so then maybe a little bit of an argument erupts. And then the next thing you know, you're a little bit more distracted now. And you're a little bit less expectant to meet with God. And this kind of just keeps happening. So what I just want to say right now is just fight every urge that you have inside of you to think about what you've got to do today, about what you've got to do tomorrow, about what you've got to do this week, and just be present so that you can come into the presence of God. All right, today we are at the end of our series called The Death of Death. And I started out the series, what we said is, I asked you the question, are you ready to meet with the real Jesus? And then I said, you're probably not. None of us are, because how could we be? ready to meet the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Yet what we find today is that still we are, despite all of that, how could we be ready to meet him? We are invited into the place that is set aside for us to meet with the divine. The place where the stars were hung, the place where the earth was spun into existence. We are invited into the place where kings would tremble to go into the presence of the king of kings, where the greatest men and women are but a pebble on a mountain. And today, as we close the chapter of the death of death, we see three things. We are called out of the shadows. Here's the three things. We're called out of the shadows into the garden to unearth the king. Out of the shadows into the garden to unearth the king. So our text is John 19, verse 38 through 42. Here's what it says. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. All right, so out of the shadows, into the garden to unearth the king. First, out of the shadows. And here's why I'm saying out of the shadows. We've got two people here, two guys, two characters, who are essentially living in the shadows of faith. So we've got Nicodemus 
and we've got Joseph of Arimathea. They're living in the shadows up until now. It took Jesus, actually, weirdly, Jesus dies, and then they're like, okay, now I have faith. So here's, here's how it happens. The first person, Nicodemus, he takes three steps towards faith that we see throughout the Gospel of John, and Nicodemus is, is a little bit of what you might call a curious skeptic. So here's how he starts out. Way back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes up to Jesus in, in the night. And he's coming to Jesus in the night because he doesn't want anybody to know that he's investigating who Jesus is. He's curious about Jesus. He wants to learn more. He's drawn to Jesus, but he doesn't want anybody to know about it. So he comes to him in the shadows. He comes to him in the night. Yes, like you, Joe. And so, so that's his start. A curious skeptic. And that's how, like Joe, that's how a lot of you guys might have started, or maybe that's where you guys are, but there's this journey towards faith. The next thing for Nicodemus is he's with his friends who have just arrested Jesus, and they are not giving Jesus a fair trial. And he says, you know what, guys? Maybe there's more to this guy than what meets the eye. Maybe we need to give him a fair trial. Maybe we need to hear him out a little bit. Maybe there's more to him than what we are realizing. Let's give him literally a fair trial. They ignore him, but Nicodemus, let's not do that today. Nicodemus, his words speak to us today saying, let's give Jesus a fair trial in our hearts. So that was the second step for Nicodemus. The third step is what we see today, where he gives, I mean, he goes all in with Jesus. And what he does is he gives this very expensive amount of aloe and myrrh. This was a burial custom for the Jews at the time. Now, he gives 75 pounds. Here's why I say he's going all in with his faith. 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh are a lot of money. So I did some research and some trying to figure out how much is this worth. So today, I got a few conflicting numbers about what the amount is would be equivalent to today, but essentially, this is somewhere between $200,000 and $1.5 million. I know that's a big spread, but somewhere between that is how much money Nicodemus has just said, this is for Jesus' burial. Now, that's the burial of a king. Everybody would have known what Nicodemus has just done. Nicodemus was part of the group of the religious elite. He was part of the people who were against Jesus. And look at what he's doing. Everybody would have seen this happen. Everybody would have known that it was Nicodemus. So now here's a situation. All of his friends are like, what is going on with Nicodemus? Like, he just turned super weird. This is... This guy should be like, we hate Jesus, and now he's giving him the burial of a king. And it's not just like he's like, oh, I believe Jesus is my king now. He's like giving him everything that he has, essentially, towards his burial, a burial of a king. So that's Nicodemus, this skeptic who has this long journey throughout the Gospel of John coming to faith in Jesus. And he wanted to stay in the shadows, specifically in the way that he wanted to investigate Jesus in the shadows. The second guy that we've got is Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea, he's also in the shadows, but he's in a different way. He's halfway following Jesus. But he doesn't want any of his friends to know it because it's going to cost him his career. It's going to cost him everything. 
So he does not want people to know. So he hangs out in the shadows, half following Jesus. But then here we see, again, after he dies, he goes very public with his faith. And actually, we know from the other Gospels that, G- that Joseph is giving Jesus Joseph's very own tomb, his very own grave. So Joseph is like the person who comes to church every once in a while. Now, okay, this is what you guys do sometimes. I start talking about something, and you start becoming convinced that I am calling you out from up here. And I want to tell you that is not what I'm doing. So if you start feeling like uncomfortable and you want to squirm in your seat like, oh, David's really calling me out in front of all these people, it's not. I'm not calling you out. But maybe I'm calling everybody out. So here's what he does. Oh, well, I am, because that's what Jesus does. So I'm calling myself out too. So Joseph is the guy, this person, who maybe comes to church every once in a while. He's half following Jesus, and he's got a group of friends at church, but he's also got a group of friends that don't go to church, and none of them know each other, and his friends that don't go to church have no idea that he goes to church. He doesn't want anybody to know about it. He's just kind of hanging out in the shadows, not ready to go public with what he's doing with Jesus. He's a half-disciple at best, and coming around the church, and here's what this all boils down to. He knows that if he goes all in with Jesus, it's going to cost him way too much. So he stays at a distance, half following. And it's kind of like the person like coming here, like, ah, there's something here. I think it's going to cost me too much. I don't have the strength to kind of go over the edge and just kind of like waiting like for someone to just push them like all the way. And that's what Jesus does. It's what he's always doing. He's constantly putting us to the fire. He's putting us to the test. And he does this with, there's a story about Jesus in this, who's called the rich young ruler, who's probably very much like Joseph of Arimathea because Joseph of Arimathea has got a lot of money. So this rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he asks the question that, that is plaguing humanity. It's this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, love God, love others, essentially. And the rich young ruler proudly says, I've done this. And Jesus says, one thing you lack. Everything you have, sell it. Give all your money to the poor and come and follow me. And he knowingly says, ah, I can't do it. Knowing he's giving up and inheriting eternal life, knowing he's walking away from it, he can't bring himself to do it. Jesus knew that there was something in this rich young ruler, this rich man, that he was following more than Jesus. So Jesus went straight to the heart of the matter. The young ruler loved money, maybe, or he loved the status that came with it, or he loved just his position of authority or power or whatever it was. But whatever that was, it would not let go of him. He could not walk away from it. And it's likely that the reason it looked like this rich young ruler loved God so much and loved others so much was because he knew that if he put on this show of loving God and loving others, it would build up his status, build up his position, and then he would get more money from it, get more power, get more acclaim, whatever it is. In a sense, using God. But Jesus wanted this rich young ruler to be able to say, Jesus, if I have you, I have everything. 
Strip me of whatever. I'm the richest man in the world because I have you. Jesus puts us all to the fire. And he says, come with me and leave everything behind. Everything. He's essentially saying, follow me and you become this whole new person. Because you've died to everything else. That's actually what he says to Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, said, Nicodemus is asking similar questions. And Jesus says, you, Nicodemus, you've just got to be born again. In other words, you've got to die to yourself. You've got to die to everything else around you so that you might come alive in me. Jesus is saying that you will not come alive in me until I'm the only thing that you are holding on to. Bold claim. And when Joseph of Arimathea, when he gives Jesus his own grave, Joseph's grave, he's getting to the heart of what Christianity is saying. Whereas Jesus is saying, give me your grave and I'll give you a room in my father's house. Let's make a trade. That's the trade that Jesus wants to make with the rich young ruler. He gets everything. We can't do it. He was saying this, give me all you have, give me your life, give me your death, and everything else in between, and then I'm going to give you a room in my father's house. I'll bring you to the room where heaven and earth were spoken into existence. And he puts the rich young ruler to the test, and he can't do it, but Joseph of Arimathea does, and we should too. Christianity Here's what you've got to know about Christianity. It's, it's strange in this way. It costs you nothing. Faith is absolutely a free gift. It's all free. Yet at the same time, it costs you everything. He gives, he, he says, give me your life. Jesus says, give me your spouse. Give me your children. Give me your bank account. Give me your house. Give me everything that you have. Give me your talents. Give me everything. And he, he wants all of that as a way to say, I can care more for your spouse, for your children, for everything that you have more than you can. So give it to me because I love your spouse more than you. I love your kids more than you. I love your talents that I've given you more than you and I love you more than you so give me everything because I can care for you and them far better than you can. He gives you what he gives you in life and then he asks for it back. Is this like a cruel game? No. He's testing us in a way. I mean, not because he needs to know what's in our heart, but he's testing us so that we can know what's in our heart. He's testing us so that we can know how much we really trust him. We might think we trust him this much, but this is the kind of stuff that really puts our heart to the test and really says, okay, let's see. How much do you really trust me? He gives you the life that you have. He asks for it back. And once you give it to him, he gives it back to you again but he's not playing with you. He's getting you to realize that he loves you and cares for you more than you can and loves you and cares for everything else that you have far greater than you can. He wants you to give him control. 
because he knows that you're a bunch of control freaks and he wants you to say, you be in control. I don't want to be anymore. Sometimes it's a painful process getting there. That's what Nicodemus does. Nicodemus calls him his king. Not with his words, but with his actions. And you know what? He gives you your skills, and he gives you your talents, and he asks for them back. Because he knows how to help you enjoy your talents and skills better than you do. See, do you know this about your talents and skills? If you don't give them to him, your talents and skills will own you. They will own you, and here's why. Because our tendency is to take the things that we're good at, the things that we're known for, and we build our identity around them. We, we build our worth around them. And then they begin to own us. They begin to define us. They are the things. They are the substance through which we measure ourselves. Every day we measure ourselves. We step on that scale and measure our worth based off of our talents or something else. When you say, here, you have them, it frees you to use your talents the way he has designed you to use them. Because you say to him, how do you want me to use these? I'll use these for you and not for me anymore because they're yours and they're not mine. And that frees you up to not be defined by them. Your talents, listen, they're either going to be things that you use to bring glory to God and joy to you or they're going to be things that you use for your own glory. But here's what happens. When you start using your talents for your own glory, what ends up happening is your talents actually start owning you and they start getting more glory than you and they start crushing you. Here's what I mean. Let's take this idea. Let's take the idea of somebody who has a talent of songwriting. Well, they write this great song that's sung throughout all the world. What happens? See, because whatever you enjoy the most, that has more glory. It has more weight. Well, if somebody writes a great song, the song actually begins to overshadow the writer. The song is more glorious because the song is being enjoyed, not the person. The person, you've got to know them to enjoy them. So the song becomes more glorious. The song becomes more beautiful. But guess what? If you use this song or whatever for God then God gets the glory through the song. God can get glory through our talents far greater than we can. So it's taking them and saying, God, here's what I have. What do you want me to do with this? And he gets glory, and we have so much joy in it, versus our talent owning us and defining us. Now, just take whatever your talent is and just substitute it for the story about the songwriter. Following Jesus looks like this giving everything to him. So like, here's what's happening right now. You guys are hearing this and you're like, oh my gosh, am I even a Christian now? Like, what is going on here? Like, and here's what's, here's what's probably happened. At some point in your life, you had this great moment of clarity and you were like, God, like if you're a Christian, you say, God, here's everything, it's yours. All of my stuff, I don't want it. It is yours. It's a moment of clarity. And over time, what's happened is you've taken that stuff and taken it back. And a little bit more. And a little bit more. And a little bit more. And he's calling you now again, the same way he called the rich young ruler, saying, give me everything. 
and come and follow me. Give me it all. Follow me. Because everything else is going to crush you, but I will love you more than you can love yourself. Give it all to me. You see what's happened. We're struggling to do this. So we become a Christian and we're like, yes, I, I, it's all yours. And then we start slowly, slowly, slowly taking it back. Or maybe you've never done this at all. And, and you're just being right now, just eaten up inside like, I know I need to do this, but I can't, I can't seem to do it. I can't seem to do it. I can't seem to do it. But I want you to know too, he's not actually saying to you potentially to like what he says to the rich young ruler, give me everything you have and sell it and follow me and you'll have nothing now. What he's saying is be willing to give me everything that you have. Not even be willing, but give me it all and then let me tell you how to use it. And here's the risk behind it all. The riskiness of following Jesus is you don't know what he's gonna say. You give him everything and you're just kind of waiting like what's he gonna tell me to do with this? Is he going to tell me to do what the rich young ruler did? Is he going to tell me to do something else? I don't know. And so it's extremely risky. That is why Joseph of Arimathea is half following him, because it's too risky, it's too costly to go all in. But finally, because of Jesus' death, he says, I'm all in. And he's calling us out of the shadows the same exact way. And he keeps promising us over and over. I mean, this is the promise of the Bible. Give Jesus everything, but it is worth it. And the thing is, you never really know it's worth it until you do it. That's the risk. And while the cost feels great, once you risk it, you've started your journey. And it's a journey that's taking you back into the garden. Back when heaven and earth, the place where heaven and earth could like sit in a room together and just be together, heaven and earth, woven together, sitting in the same room together. This is our second point, into the garden. So out of the shadows, into the garden, when sin came into the garden, so we're going back to Genesis, sin comes into the garden, as soon as that happens, the garden was lost. It's like the garden went to sleep, it went into a trance, humanity no longer had access to the place, come on guys, no longer had access to the place where God is. Heaven went dormant in our world because of sin. Sin brought us into spiritual death and it brought our, the garden, it brought our, the garden into a spiritual coma. Like it's sleeping. Well, our text, look at what it says. Jesus, see where he's buried? He's buried in a garden. And here's what happens. When Jesus, the king, is buried in the garden, the garden is awakened. It starts calling us. So let me just unravel this for you. So sin comes into the world. Here's what happens. Life is lost, love is lost, comfort is lost, satisfaction is lost, rest is lost, being human is lost. This is what death is. Sure, we're not physically dead right now, 
but we are spiritually dead. And I got to tell you this, don't pretend like the spiritual is not affecting everything else. The spiritual has a profound effect on the physical, the emotional, the social, and the cultural. And see what happens to you, what happens to us as we become so far removed from God, then what we have done is we're starting to learn how to live life without God. Or at least we're attempting to do it. We're learning to function. We're trying to manage our physical lives, our emotional lives, our social lives, and our cultural lives without God. And I'm going to tell you what that is. That is an embrace. That is embracing a slow death. And it's giving up on something. It's giving up on hope. It's giving up on hope. But Jesus enters into the garden to be buried. Now watch this. He is entering into what is hidden in order to take hold of the heavenly roots of the kingdom of God. And what he does inside of death is he's literally, well, he's not literally, but he is shocking the garden back to life again in a way. He is waking up the garden. And when he does this, the roots start digging in and life starts sprouting up in our world and starts sprouting up in your heart. The ancient world has remained dormant under the earth and he has awoken it in his death. Look, it's through, it's through, look guys, it's through Jesus' death that brings Nicodemus to faith. And it's through Jesus' death that brings Joseph of Arimathea to, to faith. His death woke them up. And it's through his death that he awakens us. He stirs our soul. A restless longing for the garden has been awakened because he has, in a sense, woken the garden up. Two people, part of the Grove, just recently went on a dental mission trip. I think you guys might have seen some pictures. Now, John and Johnny. Now, here's what Johnny told me. He said, when I talked to him about it, he said that these people in Bolivia had nothing. Like, they have nothing. He said, but they were happy. Maybe happier than us. Now, a lot of times we talk about happiness and being with God is simultaneous. Like, if to find happiness is to find God. And if you seek happiness, you will not find it. But if you seek God, you will stumble upon happiness. Now, now, here's what I think he means when he's talking about they're happier than us, maybe. Is they have nothing, and we look at them and we say, you shouldn't be smiling. I mean, you don't have ice cream. You don't have ice water. How in the world are you smiling right now? But, but here's what I want to say this. If you take the person in a third world country, if you take them in a third world country and you bring them to America and let them live here for a few years, and then say, okay, it's time to go back to Bolivia. Well, they're going to hate you for saying that. They're going to be miserable because they're going to miss that ice cream. And here's what, now the question is, why could they have been happy before, but now you take them out and put them back in, but now they're not happy anymore? Because you have awakened, in a sense, a small paradise inside of them, a longing for a paradise that they had not experienced before, so they didn't know what they were missing. 
Deep within you is a distant memory of heaven. And that memory has gone to sleep. Christ awakens it. And when he awakens that distant memory, you become very unhappy with the way that things are. You begin to long more and to hope more. And that is the way, that is the kingdom of God awakening up within you. Don't fight it. We tend to try to suppress our longings, feeling like, ah, there's no way this is going to be able to be true. There's no way this is true. So we suppress them. And what the Bible is trying to get you to do is to stop suppressing them and just embrace them. Embrace the dissatisfaction that you feel in life because that is like a hammer pounding on your heart saying there is more to life than what is in this world. Long for the kingdom of God. Long for the king who brings the kingdom of God. All was lost and all can be found again in Christ. Life and hope and love and comfort and rest and peace and satisfaction and being a human again that was lost can now be found again in Christ. Because when that which is life enters into death and speaks life, life obeys even inside of death. He awakens life again. Reversing the effects of sin. This, this is the idea kind of of the mustard seed. Like the mustard seed, like the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Well, Jesus is like the seed that has been buried under the earth. And when he is dead and buried and he comes alive again, this is the kingdom of God sprouting up in your heart and sprouting up in this world. Up out of the grave. And life can only come up out of death by Christ. Because he is the king. He's the creator of life. So only he can enter into death to bring life about again. I hope that you heard that. Because when he does that, it makes death no more. So remember earlier, I said Jesus had a burial of a king. So he is the king, the king of kings. Now, what you've got to know about kings is when a king, because I haven't had this privilege, we haven't had this privilege of being a king, but when you're a king and you say something, everybody does what you tell them to do. Like They don't even second guess you. Maybe, maybe they're a little bit in their mind, but they're not going to say it out loud. They do whatever you ask. Well, Jesus is the king of kings. He's the king of creation. And when the king of creation enters into death and speaks life, life obeys him inside of death. And when that happens, the coffin of death is broken open and life spills out of it. That is good news. Death is put to death, and this is the only way. It had to be the king, because he's the only one who could enter into it and bring life. It had to be God himself who died so that death could be defeated and be no more. No one else is the author of life, only him. And this is our third point, to unearth the king. Now, see, when I say unearth Jesus... We don't actually unearth him. He unearths himself and his kingdom. See, 
there's no signs. Like, look around. Like, in a lot of ways, there's no signs of eternal life here. In a lot of ways. But when you go looking for the king, and you go looking for him in the grave, and find him to not be there, then you say, resurrection is possible. And he has led the way through it. He is already unearthed. But here's the thing. You don't ever realize he's already unearthed until you go start investigating his grave. And you start looking. Okay, Jesus, yes. Okay, he was a man. He died. He rose. Okay, well, that's, let me put a question mark there. So then you start this journey of investigating. And you finally come to the place where you look inside of his tomb and you see that he is not there. We attempt to unearth him, to dig him up, only to find he's already been unearthed. And that's our journey of discovery. That's our journey of finding that Christianity, despite everything, it's worth hoping in. And not only hoping in, but going all in with. Giving everything. Because here's what happens. We have this kernel of hope. And hope starts blooming up into faith. And then that faith grows and grows and we become more and more assured of the reality and the truth of this. Not like because we're sitting under some preacher talking about something and we're just blindly obeying whatever the preacher is saying, but because we're investigating the realities of what the Bible is saying about Jesus and we've come to the conclusion that despite everything we feel, this is true. And I'm giving everything for it. If you want to really meet Jesus again for the hundredth time, because listen, if you want to grow, do you know what you got to do? You got to get to the root, and he's the root. So if you want to grow, you go and meet with Jesus. If you want to, for the first time, meet him, here's what you got to do, or the hundredth time, meet him, here's what you got to do. The Spirit of God has given you something, a shovel, and says, dig, 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 and you get into the word. You get into prayer and you start digging. Another thing you got to dig into, something that we don't like to dig into, it's a reality of our own spiritual death. So we dig into the reality of it. And you see that life has been stolen from you. Or maybe you have given it away. And so you dig into the death that you are already in. And here's what you find. You're buried under the earth. And it's then where you finally realize, oh, no, I really am spiritually dead, that you're finally saying, I need someone to pull me up out of this. And then you hear the story of Christianity, and it begins to awaken this reality in you. While you're buried deep under your own spiritual death, that is when you find Christ, and that is when you name him your king. The mustard seed has fallen into your heart. And the kingdom of God is growing in it because the king has found his dwelling place right there through his spirit. The other day, I was walking and I saw this sidewalk that had been ripped up from the ground like it was a piece of paper. Sidewalk is heavy, it's unmovable, but it just looked like it was demolished. Do you know what did it? It was the roots of a tree. 
Jesus is the mustard seed. See, we gave him our grave. You give him your grave. Here's what he does. He's the mustard seed that's dropped in your grave. And he sprouts. He comes alive again. And he, the root, rips open the coffin that you are in so that you simply follow him out. Give him your grave and he'll break you out of it. That's what Joseph of Arimathea did. A half follower turned into, I'm all in. That's what Nicodemus did. Take everything I have. Listen. Be expectant. Listen for the whispers of heaven. They are calling you out of the shadows into the garden so that you might meet the king of kings. Let's pray. God, we pray that we're here. I mean, we're here, God, and we're here because we want, we want you or we want to have something greater to hope in. And God, you know where, like, you know where all of us are right now. You know where all of us are with you. You know where we think we are. You know where we really are. But all in all, God, we are at your mercy. And we know that it has to be you who stirs this up in us. And so we come to you and we plead with you and we ask that you would reveal to us the beauty of this truth and the truth of this truth. So that not only in our future, our coffins might be broken open, but even now we might begin to taste the sweetness of this union that we have with you where you, our king, have come for us. And you are beginning to breathe your kingdom into our hearts, into the world around us. God, help us to just give up so we might just come to you and say, God, I want to go all in. Here's my stuff. Here's everything. Help us, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.